Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Funsky. These days, everybody's talking about diversity and inclusion. And there are real penalties for not paying attention to these issues. The $20 million jury verdict that St. Louis County recently got slapped with following discrimination in the police department is proof of that. But all too often, diversity can seem like a matter of talk and more talk. What does it take to create true inclusion for different races, sexual orientations, and disabilities? Webster University hopes to move the needle, quote, from conversation to action. That's the title of its four-day diversity and inclusion conference kicking off February 24th. And we have three of that conference's participants joining us today for sort of a sneak peek. And that includes Colleen Starkloff. She's co founder of the Starcloth Disability Institute, which advocates for people in St. Louis with disabilities. She'll be speaking at the conference, and she's here with us today in studio. So, Colleen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sarah. Nice to be here. And we're also joined by um, Aisha Sultan. She's a nationally syndicated columnist at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and also an independent filmmaker. She'll be honored with the university's Champion for All Award. So, Aisha, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm looking forward to the conversation. And last but not least, coming to town to give the keynote address is journalist Michelle Norris. She's the former host of NPR's All Things Considered and the founder of the Race Card Project. And she's joining us by phone today. So, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. Hello. Good to be with all of you. Now, there's some irony in the fact that we've gathered you three women together today for a conversation about how we move from lip service to real action. And yes, we're doing that by having more talking. But action is where I want to start with each of you. And so, Michelle, uh, the effort that brings you to St. Louis is the Race Card Project. And you created this in 2010. And in the 10 years since, you've received many thousands of six-word race cards in response. So what prompted you to start this project? and encourage people to share their observations in this way? Um, first of all, thank you again uh, for, for having us all on the program to talk about this important issue. And I think anyone who does this work, sometimes you, you, you have to go where the path leads you, and you set out to do one thing, and sometimes something else happens. In my case, I put a basket on the table to collect these stories because I had just written a book about my family's own complex legacy around race, and I thought no one wanted to talk about race. So the six-word exercise was a way to lubricate that conversation, to bring people into the conversation. And what happened is I realized pretty quickly that people were looking for an on-ramp. They actually really wanted to have the conversation. And so as the six-word stories kept coming in, first on postcards and then eventually digitally, we made a place for them to share not just that six-word story, the beginning, the distillation of their thoughts about race and identity, but then to share the backstory. And that's where things got really interesting, where people would send in essays um, and sometimes artifacts, sometimes artwork, sometimes historical documents um, outlining their thoughts and, and what they really thought about it. And, and, and what we tried to do then is to take that archive, and now it's 10 years old, and as you say, it's you know, we've archived more than 500,000 stories, and there are thousands more in queue, to actually use that archive so people can find each other and learn about a life outside of their own and use it to spark dialogue, but more importantly, to help people figure out what course of action they need to take. Because often when people start this work, they just set out on this course and they decide we're going to do this and we're going to do that and we're going to have a campus-wide initiative or we're going to close our business for an entire day without first listening to people mm -hmm. and understanding the ways that 
um, race and identity and social and economic and class dynamics shape our lives. Now, Aisha Sultan, one of the areas you've identified for meaningful change also sort of interacts with what Michelle is talking about. Um, You're looking at everyday interactions with other people. How did that become a focus for you? Well, after the last election, um, I had a lot of intense emotions, like a lot of people in this country. And even though I'm a writer with a platform, I felt like I wasn't quite explaining to people really how I was feeling, maybe what I was thinking intellectually. And so I decided that maybe I would show people instead. And I wrote a short script that was just like slices of life, you know, things that I've informed from my experience and the experience of other people. And then I actually decided to just make it into a little movie, a nine minute short film. And the film is called Other People. And it's based in St. Louis. And so then what I did was I, I wanted audiences who watched it to not think intellectually initially about it, but emotionally connect with the characters and feel either a sense of awkwardness or uncomfortableness um, in certain situations that happen more frequently for some people than they do for others. And, um, and so then I took this film and started showing it on college campuses and different places and inviting people to talk to me about these characters and their reactions. And what that did is it opened the door for people to talk about their own, wherever we were, whether it was an institution or a workplace. And I think it's hard to have conversations that can make us feel threatened or uncomfortable or awkward, but they're they're important. Do you feel like from uh, what Michelle was saying about how people just needed that on-ramp yeah. to the conversation? You've, you've seen that with the film as well. That's that's the on-ramp. It is. And for for me, it was a less threatening way. I mean, this is the Midwest. You know, we talk about things a little differently. And we're just so, we don't like to be confrontational or say things that's going to make someone else feel uncomfortable. So I felt like giving people characters as an on-ramp into this conversation and something short, something recognizable. Like my film takes place on a playground between parents and kids and then at a birthday party. And many parents have been in those situations and some of us have had very awkward situations that we've never, maybe never even talked about in mixed company. And so that this was just um, the way I approached it. Mm-hmm. I also want um, to talk to Colleen Starkloff. I know the Starkloff Disability Institute has been at the forefront of making a more welcoming world for people with disabilities, and you've been involved in that fight since 1973. What's one meaningful change that you've seen that you've worked on during that time? It's hard to pick one, but I will tell you that um, <clears throat> when Max Starkloff, my late husband, and I first started this work, And people would ask us, what's the greatest barrier facing people with disabilities? We would say it was attitudes because attitude drives everything. Attitude attitude determines how you're going to broach a subject or a policy issue or whatever it is. Your own personal attitude is going to drive how you think. And back in those days, the attitude toward people with disabilities was rather paternalistic and one of let's take care of these people and put them somewhere. But there wasn't a no. As a matter of fact, I met my husband when he was living in a nursing home and I fell in love with a guy living in a nursing home. So that's a, um, that's a pretty remarkable <laughs> thing right there. No, not if you knew him. <laughs> but um, but yes, I mean, generally speaking, nobody would expect that to happen. I was a PT. I'm a PT. A physical therapist. Physical therapist. Thank you. And um, so, but if you ask, 
us today, and as a matter of fact, um, before Max died, somebody did say to us, what's the single greatest barrier facing people with disabilities? We said it was still attitudes. But I think that the work that has happened as a result of the disability rights movement in this country, in this city, in this state, and in the world, because our movement is spreading around the world, has begun to chip away at the attitudes that drive public policy, that drives people's opinions. So we, so we fast forward now to the fact that we're talking about diversity and inclusion. I can tell you when Max and I first started out, we were fighting for uh, people with disabilities to have jobs. Well, mm -hmm. it was the attitude was, well, they can't work. They can't see. They can't hear. They can't use their hands to type on a typewriter, you know, back then it was typewriters. Computers were this new room full of things. Um, and so I think we're making great progress. I, I, I say to people all the time, the Starkloff Disability Institute is very, very focused on people with disabilities getting into really good jobs, not being underestimated for their capacity. And so Working all these years in the disability rights movement, I am seeing a shift in corporate thinking. Mm -hmm. um, corporations are now reaching out saying we really want to welcome people with disabilities into our workforce. But how do we do that? When you look at all of the, the marginalized groups who we're talking about within diversity and inclusion, we talk about people who are black, people who are different ethnicities, LGBTQ, women, the fifth one big group there is people with disabilities, but I really think we're the least understood. Hmm. Most of the other groups are hated, so there's something to fight against. We're pitied. Hmm. Don't like it. Don't want it. Keep your pity. We have an expression, which I won't use on the air about that. <laughs> but, um, but we are rising up. Our people are rising up, and we're making a difference in our communities. And at the Starkloff Disability Institute, we're empowering people to be ready for those jobs and working together with the corporate community to do that. Michelle Norris, I'm, I'm curious about your reaction um, to this idea of being pitied versus being hated in the sort of 10 years that, that you've gotten all these race cards back from people where they're speaking very honestly about things. Do you think on, on some level it's better to be hated than pitied? Or <laughs> is, there, is there really no good answer here for people who aren't willing to sort of open those doors of inclusion? Well, you know, I, I don't think there's a, a good answer there. I mean, you, you, you know, you hope that your humanity is not that um, you don't land somewhere on that spectrum mm -hmm. um, because different groups have different crosses to bear. But what I really loved hearing is this discussion about attitudes because we often talk about what people say but not the attitude behind it, right? right. Not the motive behind right. it, not the experience um, behind that. And part of having, you know, we say that we need action instead of talk, but talk is important also. Talk is how you find, that words are how we find each other. Mm -hmm. And introspection is how we find something about ourselves, right? And and to be able to figure out what people bring um, to work with them every day. I mean, a lot of the work that we do now at the Race Car Project is in universities and museums, and we've worked with the, the Justice Department in the previous administration, and, um, and a lot of work in, in corporate settings. And what happens when people surface these stories is they start to, the, the, the organizing, you know, the, organi the organizing, um, institution starts to understand what people bring to work with them every day, even though it's never articulated. Mm -hmm. Even though people never say it out loud, they still bring those experiences and those attitudes to work with them every day. And it explains why um, someone would look at someone with a disability and decide, well, you know, I just don't think they're up to it. 
That's right. And at the same time, look at someone who is a woman or a person of color and think they're just not management material. They might not say it out, out loud. They might say it in coded language, like, ah, she's just not the right fit. Or, um, you know, I'm not sure that they're quite ready for this. But what that masks is the attitude behind that. And that's what we have to figure out how to surface and chip away at and get people to, to really understand um, and, and recognize and, and, and interrogate because those are the things that create the sort of silent, um, the invisible walls. And, and if we can, you know, understand how they create invisible walls, maybe we can start to create tangible bridges so that people can understand and, and, and even cross, cross that bridge, even if it means going into a place of discomfort, even if it means owning up to something um, that they're ashamed of. I mean, one of the things that I appreciate in the race card project is when people admit, you know, um, ashamed that um, I'm surprised by accomplished minorities, hmm. um, you know, that, boy, you look at that and, and you might think, why would he say that? Or, you know, what a bonehead for saying something like that. I appreciate his candor and his honesty because once it's surfaced, then we can start to deal with it. Michelle, I, I completely agree with you on the importance of conversation. And when I show this film and have a conversation about it, uh, the title of my talk is about unpacking assumptions because I think what undergirds those attitudes are assumptions. And, you know, I mean, you can call it bias or subconscious bias or assumptions. Um, but obviously, all of us have them from our life experiences, from the media messages we get, from the culture we grow up in, the attitudes that we inherit. Um, and exactly what you said, it's not until we interrogate them and then reflect on them. And the other piece to that, and I, what I try to do, is create a sense of empathy for perhaps mm -hmm. an experience that you have not had, but someone that you know or that you care about or that you work alongside um, may have had. And I feel like that empathy piece is also critical to changing behavior. The, I, I love that you focused on, on how important words are in talking to people, Michelle. Um, we, have an, we have a program called Dream Big at the Starkloft Disability Institute, and we, we are right now looking for young people who want to be involved in that, kids with disabilities who are teenagers, either in high school or college. And when they go into corporations who welcome these young students and say, we'd love for you to work for us, nobody says that to our kids, first of all. So it begins to make these young people think that somebody does want them, and it, it boosts their spirit. But what also happens um, is that the people within corporations who network with our kids and who talk to them about what that company's about and why you should come, they, um, <clears throat> they are very enlightened. They're very happy to see disability in a different light because it answers questions they're afraid to ask. We're all saying that people are afraid to ask, but Michelle is giving people an opportunity to ask those questions. You do come to an understanding, and you do begin to change attitudes. We're talking to Colleen Starkloff. She's the co-founder of the Starkloff Disability Institute. We're also talking to Aisha Sultan, who's a nationally syndicated columnist at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and Michelle Norris, who's the founder of the Race Card Project and the former host of NPR's All Things Considered. We're talking about them because they're all participating in a diversity and inclusion conference at Webster University kicking off February 24th. There's just so many important issues to talk about today. 
Um, Aisha, I wanted to ask you one thing. I know at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, you hear from angry readers all the time. And sometimes those readers, it seems like, are maybe flat out racist or hostile for reasons that have nothing to do even with what you've written. I'm wondering, from talking to those readers or responding to what they say, have you ever been able to change someone's mind in, in the way that we're talking about today? Or is it hopeless? Well, you know, I don't think anything is ever hopeless, but there are limits to what can happen in an email, and in a few emails, um, or even a phone conversation. Or, I mean, I have a reader who's been writing to me for years and years and years, um, and he he's on a very different end of the political spectrum than I am. He's like totally opposite, um, very different life experiences, and. You know, he certainly has very bigoted, bigoted views about Muslims. Um, and we did meet face-to-face once. I, I even wrote about it, and he used, like, a slur mm. to, uh, in front of me. Um, and then later on, though, he did apologize. And I haven't been able to just completely cut I mean, he, he writes me every week, every time <laughs> I write something. And he's been doing it for years and years. Um, but I think... What he's done, and sometimes people can happen with people when they're not challenged, is they carve a space out for you. Like, okay, you're different than all these other Muslims. All the attitudes and assumptions and biases that I have about Muslims in general, well, you're an exception to that. Or if you're an African-American person, you're not like, and that's why my film is called Other People, mm-hmm. right? Because, and um, I think there are limits um, to how far you can go, but you never know. I don't think uh, I don't think it's ever hopeless. And you know, maybe one day I will uh, impact someone so that they think about something in a different way. But I, I, I don't know that I have ever. <laughs> Michelle, as as a fellow journalist, I'm wondering: Have you ever had any interactions where you feel like, okay, uh, attitudes are changing, things are shifting? You know, I I see it. Um, I see it when we do work out in the field and we bring people together and. And, I mean, I think, I'm going to get this wrong, but there's a, a physicist, I think his name is James Fenneman, and, and please, listeners, forgive me if I got his name right, I got his name wrong, but his, there's this concept that the mind never goes back to its original composition once exposed to a new idea. Hmm. And I love that because you don't always know the impact that you're going to have. I mean, in the work that we do, we don't use the words common ground anymore. And why we is just that? decided not to talk about common ground because, in part, because we're so divided, um, but also because the work is not to get someone to change their mind. And I keep talking about bridges over and over again because it's a metaphor that I think captures the work that really m- many of us do in this space. And you don't usually, a few times in life, do you cross a bridge in a one way direction and never come back. So the goal is not to get someone to move into another camp. I'm going to indoctrinate you into my way of thinking. But rather, I want you to understand my way of thinking. And we may never agree, but I want you to at least understand my perspective. And I think if that is the goal, um, that it's achieving success under that rubric is, uh, is, is, is actually something that you, can, that you can see. And you can see that people, hmm, I don't agree with you, but I now understand you. And that when you bring people together and they're able to talk across difference, which is something that we so rarely do right now as we are becoming more fractured, as we are becoming more internal, as we, you know, two of us on the call are journalists, you know, we know that right now that so many people 
um, consume a media diet that just affirms or confirms what they already believe. So there are just few opportunities except when we come together, sometimes at the family table, where people even then are you know, having to figure out how to talk across difference. So, you know, I see it sometimes in real time when people are at least willing to engage. But for anyone who does this work, and I think, you know, this is true for Aisha and Colleen both, you don't know how you're sowing seeds. You actually don't know how the things that people are exposed to will live in them and how they may pay that forward or how it may be determinative in their lives sometime down the future. The kids that go to work in these offices and the people that they're exposed to um, and the empathy that develops in that workplace, years from now someone may call upon that when making a hiring decision, and that... when deciding how to organize an office. And that's, the, the, that, that's how this is long-term work. You're working for something that you might not even see in your lifetime. And Michelle, that is a great thought to end on. So I want to thank Michelle Norris, the founder of the Race Card Project, for joining us today. Also, Aisha Sultan, columnist at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and Colleen Starkloff, co-founder of the Starkloff Disability Institute. They'll all be at a Webster University conference. Lots of information about that on our website. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. KWMU.